in their songs, they, they were, the lyrics were quite good, quite, well, very different to the lyrics today, unfortunately. They dealt with issues of life and uh, emotional, even psychological conditions sometimes. Their hit song was called, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And it starts by saying, and this is the first stanza, it says, Welcome to your life. Uh, I'm not going to sing it. Welcome to your life. There's, so, so tempting, isn't it? There's no turning back. Even while we sleep, we will find you acting on your best behaviour. Turn your back on Mother Nature. Everybody wants to rule the world. From the moment that he was born, Joseph found himself that there was really no going back. God was going to use him for his glory in the most unlikely but powerful way. Even as he slept, part of God's plan were being revealed to him in the dreams God gave him. And everybody interpreted correctly what was going to happen, but they could not handle it. And the jealousy and the situation at home got worse. And while he dreamt that one day everybody would bow to him, it wasn't his desire, it wasn't his personal desire or ambition or what do you want to do for life or I want to rule the world. Well, doesn't everybody? Well, not him. That wasn't his particular ambition. It was, however, something that God revealed to him that would happen. And while he wasn't king, boy, he wasn't too far from it, he was second in command of the most advanced, rich, powerful nation of the world at the time, which was Egypt. So it is irrelevant to ask whether he desired the title, the power and all of that, because that is exactly where God wanted him to be. And he submitted to God's will. Remember that the story of Joseph tells us of how Israel, the people of God, ended up in Egypt in the first place. Of God's preservation plan for his chosen ones. And then it explains how the promise of God in in Genesis 12 would be fulfilled. Then it tells us how God will go about making Abraham into a great nation. Now within that larger plot is the detailed story of Joseph's treatment of his brothers and their ultimate reconciliation. Now this is a very detailed part of the book of Genesis. Indeed, it is one of the most detailed stories in the entire Bible. And as the plot begins to thicken, this section of Genesis is, is, is full of emotion and, and tears and fears. The fears of the brothers who are, are back home, but they know that they, they've left their brother Simeon back in Egypt. They can't leave him there forever. He's in an Egyptian prison. 
There is the fear of Jacob who has, of Jacob, Israel, who has already lost two sons. As far as he's concerned, Joseph is dead and Simeon is is in a prison over there. He doesn't want to risk the the young one, Benjamin, his favoured third son. There will also be a time for tears as Joseph confronts all that stuff, all the emotional turmoil from the past 20 years is bubbling up. All the pain, all the hurt that he has experienced. During the two decades that began with Joseph's brothers selling him into Egypt, the Bible tells us again and again in chapter 39 that God was with Joseph. Remember that? That phrase that just kept repeating itself. But God wasn't just with Joseph. God was also with the brothers back home, but in a very different way. God, you see, never gave their consciences a rest. And last week we already saw how their their trip was filled with fear and with guilt because they relived all the memories of, of the terrible thing they did to Joseph when they put him in a pit they had lunch and dinner and all of that. Then the slaves, traders came and they sold him and then they tried to get on with their life. But God here in these chapters would use Joseph as an instrument of gracious but firm discipline to bring them around, to restore them. So in verses 1 to 14, we look at the need to return to Egypt. The need to return to Egypt. We read from verse 1. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to them, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now if you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy Food for you. The supplies that they got from Egypt lasted a little while, but the drought continues unabated. The severity continues. It is a threat to the whole family. Judah now steps forward as the spokesperson and reminds his father of their predicament. Dad, we got no food. It's run out. And he pleads to his father, Jacob or Israel, to grant them, to give them permission to take Benjamin so that they can go down and get food and also rescue their brother Simeon who's still languishing in prison over there. They can't just turn up to the ruler in Egypt and get grain because the ruler said very, you know, strongly, he said, don't show your face around here unless you've got your little brother with you. Their integrity had been questioned and was absolutely impossible for them to do otherwise. And it's this, the, the, the severity of this God-appointed famine, the drought, 
that was affecting the whole of the world at the time. And remember, it's got nothing to do with man-induced climate change. All right? Nothing to do with the game. This is God's thing. All right? And it was getting worse. And the pressure was on. Unless you, for us urbanites, it's, it's a bit hard to understand what a drought looks like. Yes, we go and, and the, the garden looks a bit tattered and sorry and all of that. If you're on a farm, there's no water, everything's dying, it looks really sad. A few years ago we did a trip to, to Wellington. We tried to help them because of the intense drought that was in the nation at the time. And it's, it gets pretty desperate. Well, that's your livelihood. For us living in a city, it's very hard. We just turn to go to Woolies or Coles and, you know, get whatever we want. It's a bit hard when you're living in countries where that's not the case. The Christian physicist Isaac Newton, and if you did physics or even a little bit of physics at school, you would have heard of his first law of motion that said this, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. Remember that one? No, didn't pay too much attention in physics. I'll repeat it. Everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. That's not just the law of physics. It's a spiritual law as well. God has a limitless amount of resources and levers and and vices and everything else that he just keeps turning and turning and puts the squeeze on. Why? To impress upon us our need of him and to push us in the direction that he wants us to go. The worst thing that God can do is just simply let us be. I'm going to, yeah, it's all right, man. Everything's cool, fine and dandy. We don't need God. We don't need to think about eternity. We don't think, need to think about the spiritual matters. But when the squeeze is on, things start to happen. To Paul, the Apostle Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was happy persecuting people at the time and yet he was going against God's will and he said, it is, a hard, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to go against my will. I'm going to put the pressure on you. I'm going to squeeze you. I'm going to have you where I want you and here is where I want you. And I says, Turn your life around now. You can't keep on kicking against me. You're not, it's not going to work. You're not going to win. Now some of you here this morning might be kicking against the goads and it's, just, it's only hurting more. It's hurting so much it's starting to bleed but you don't want to stop because it means that you have to recognise that God is in control. And you have to surrender your life to him. Both Paul 
and the patriarch Jacob, with, with God was putting the squeeze on them to the point that they had to yield and basically lift their white flag up and say, yep, I give up, I surrender. It's a hard thing to do. But Israel, Jacob, is still wrapped in his own, absorbed in his own misery, thinking only of himself, unfortunately. We've been up and down this journey with Jacob and he's, he's a man of many colours, I tell you. And notice the way he responds by shifting the blame in verse 6. He says, why did you bring trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Why did you do that? Uh, because we do have another brother? He blames his son for not having lied to the Egyptians, basically. He is, in effect, having a go at his sons for not being as deceptive as he once was. Maybe still is. On your dad, setting a great example for the rest of the family. Fantastic. Judah's response is striking. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. He doesn't try to defend himself. He takes responsibility. He offers what is called surety. Surety. One, surety is basically one who stands in for another and takes the penalty if necessary. Ring any bells? He is leading the way for the one who would be his, from his own tribe many centuries down the line who will be his most glorious descendant who will take our penalty, who will be the surety before the Father, he will take our place, take the blame, he will stand in our place and full responsibility will be upon him. And if anything had happened, Judah will be the one to take the fall. Now this is one of the rarest traits in human nature. We usually seek to blame someone else, find somebody else to take the fall. Very prevalent today. It was him. It was his job. He should have put the rubbish out. You know? He made me do it. It's always, it starts from in the household and it goes on and on and goes into society and everything else. How many are willing to step up and say, yep, I'll blame me, I'll do it? Well, Judah did. And then Jacob comes around, verses 11 to 14. Then their father said to them, it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and, and, and take them down to the man as a gift. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he 
may let you, your brother and Benjamin, come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob, finally the patriarch, the old fellow, suddenly submits to the inevitable as he realises that the alternative to risking the life of Benjamin is that they all, the whole clan, die of starvation, including Benjamin. And having come to this difficult decision, he offers instructions designed to, to gain favour with, with the Egyptians. He tells his son to take some presents that would, have, that would have been protocol in those days anyway, then take double the money that they took last time and thirdly take Benjamin, the little one. And then he prays to God Almighty. This is the name in which God had come to his grandfather Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. This is significant because Jacob is is about to send all of his seed, all of his children, all of the descendants, his whole lineage, with the possibility that none of them will come back, that they will return. We know the end of the story. He didn't. And the, the, the line of the covenant is on the line, no pun intended. Then he asked that God Almighty would grant them compassion in the sight of men. And then finally these words of resignation, almost a contradiction of what he has just prayed. He's prayed to God Almighty and yet at the same time he, he's, he's fearful, he is Full of doubts, he is resigned to the inevitable. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that El Shaddai will do anything. He's, he's basically, he said in his expression, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved, is similar to Esther's, if I perish, I perish, in Esther chapter 4. Whatever will be, will be, basically. Is that what our faith is like? Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, Lord, I'm I'm full of faith, but I'm also full of doubts. Ultimately, we have to come to the point where we surrender our trust in God's hands. A test of faith, test of faith, it places everything, everything in God's hands. Let, let me put it in a context that you can maybe relate to. Hopefully, you don't have to actually see it happening. Say there's four brothers in the family, only four brothers, and war breaks out. Will mum and dad be happy to send the four brothers to war? Remember how Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan starts? Will you be happy to do that? Or you simply submit the life of all four of them into the hands of God and say, duty calls, you have to go. That's sort of the context 
that we're talking about here, all the kids, all the family, all the descendants, in order to save the family. The only survivor, there's a story of an only survivor of a shipwreck. He was shipwrecked on an island. It was uninhabited. And he cried out to God to save him. And every day he scanned the horizon for help. But nothing, no one was coming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a rough hut. He got to work and, and, and put a few of his possessions that floated about and put a few of the possessions inside the hut. But then one day, after hunting for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames. The smoke just rolling up to the heavens. The worst had happened. He was stung with grief that the only thing he had in this place, all alone, was now burnt to the ground. Early the next day, though, a ship drew near the island and rescued him. How did you know I was here? He asked the crew. And we saw your smoke signal, was the reply. You see, whatever it is that you and I might be going through, sometimes God has to remove the most important things for us in order to start his rescue plan and get through to us. Your present difficulty, in other words, may be instrumental to your future joy. Right? Do you get it? It's part of that. You have to let it go. Let it go. No, not frozen. Just let it go. Hold on to faith. Cling on to faith. And God will put the pressure on sometimes and say, mate, open your hands, let it go. Back to the palace, verses 15 to 34. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to, to Joseph and then Joseph saw Benjamin with them He said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. So the brothers made the long trip back to Egypt. The meeting is immersed in in fear and trepidation. Will they be met with more suspicion and accusations? Will they get Simeon back and receive the necessary provisions to take back home. All these questions. One thing is certain is that they didn't expect an invitation to dinner. And Moses, who who wrote this, the author, he he focuses on two sides of the story. I hope you you can see it. On one side, he continues to give us glimpses of Joseph his kindness, his tough exterior, his, his soft centre, vulnerability and power. And on the brother's side, Moses shows us the 
guilty conscience still eating away at them, their, their suspicion at having received the kindness when they went back home and they found, they found the, the money returned, their fearfulness. And yet, at the same time, he's going to show us how God puts his fear in their lives through this whole process. Now, Jacob, Jacob probably would have hoped that nuts and gifts would appease the man. There wasn't much to eat. There wasn't much to eat in Canaan except pistachio nuts. You know, can you survive on pistachio nuts? Well, maybe some of you would. But whatever they had, they said, well, take some of them at least, the best of the land. Not much, but take whatever we have. Let's take it out there. But the truth is Joseph didn't care much about pistachio nuts and honey. He cares about people. He cares about his father Jacob. He cares about his little brother. It was at his birth, you see, that their mother Rachel died. There was only two of them. The rest are half-brothers, but Benjamin is his full brother. He, now the young one, the the baby Benjamin, is now the the favoured son. And, And Joseph can no longer contain himself so he he leaves the table and, and again goes to a private place and has a nice cry. The tears rolling. The exchange. The fears in the brothers and the tears in Joseph. Fears, tears for fears. And as the brothers were seated, they noticed something about the seating arrangement. They had been arranged according to their age. Reuben, the eldest, was seated at one end and Benjamin was seated at the other. And the intervening brothers were all in the exact order of their ages. What made it unusual is that the brothers never told this official, this Egyptian official, the order of the, of the brothers. And yet that's exactly how they were seated. So, hmm, wonder what's going on here. And then Benjamin's plate, the little one, the young one, was bigger and the portions on his plate were piled higher. It's a bit like my aunt in Paraguay. The portion of the visitor from Australia gets piled really high. And dare it plateau out a little bit, it just gets piled on again. Oh, dinner in Paraguay. Now, this was deliberate, all of this. Why did Joseph order Benjamin to be favoured in such a way? This was, you see, a measure of Joseph's love for his youngest baby brother, the son of his departed mother. This was the only true full brother that he had that was not involved in the plot to sell him into slavery. This was also a test for the older brothers. Joseph had already seen how they responded to to the jealousy. That he was dad's favourite. Oh, why did you get that and not me? Oh, look at the favoured son, the golden child and so on.
Reconciliation can never be dealt with, honestly dealt with, unless they're confronted with their jealousies, sinful past. But let me just ask you, how do you feel when your brother's plate, your neighbour's plate, and by brother I mean it could be your sibling, it could be your brother at church, when his plate is pretty full, you know what I mean? Wow, where did you get that car from? Wow, you're doing all right, aren't you? My goodness, God's not blessing me that way. You're going on another trip, really? Where do you get the money from? Fair Inga. what's going on? You see what I'm getting at? See how jealousy can creep in? And, and envy? It is the 10th commandment. And yet, in a, in a society like Australia, it's one of the things that we, we, we don't even feel sorry for anymore. We want that. And if we can't have it, well, we're surely going to feel pretty bad about you having it. And not me. God, through his servant Joseph, was going to give them a final exam. A final exam that would bring them to their knees where all of this stuff is going to come to the surface. Verses one, uh, chapter 44, verses 1 to 17, the framing. The framing. Now Joseph, now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of, the, of his house. Fill the man's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of the sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. A silver cup was, of course, quite valuable. But its use here involved Joseph's personal recollection that his brothers had sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. That's the connection between the silver. So he now harasses and tests them with silver. The brothers wake up early and hit the road for Canaan. They're probably a little bit groggy, with a bit hungover after the party with Joseph. And after the brothers exited the city, Joseph sent his steward to chase down his brothers and say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? For the moment, for the moment, the, the next chapter everything is revealed, but for the moment Joseph presents himself as a fearful pagan ruler with powers over life, and death. So these brothers were caught in this impossible situation and there was nothing they could do. It was God who was 
through Joseph, assaulting them at the most vulnerable point, the youngest brother, Benjamin. Yes, they were framed and innocent on this occasion. Yes, it was an entrapment. But just just make sure, just make sure, on this occasion they're innocent, but just make sure that the judge doesn't hear about the previous past convictions, okay? For all intensive purposes, these brothers were as pure as driven snow. All their previous fears and suspicions have now become reality. The past is catching up with them. The past when Joseph pleaded for mercy as he was being dragged away by the slave traders has caught up with them. And this is all they can do now is plead for mercy. Pleading for mercy. Have we ever found ourselves in in that spot where there's nothing left? Nothing left. Where you got me. Where I don't know whether the situation is just or unjust because in the sight of God there is no one innocent, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the, for the glory of God. We're all guilty sinners here. We're all as pure as driven snow. Have you come to that point in your life where you say, well, God, nothing, nothing, I can't plead anything. That's who I am. Have you come to that point of repentance and say, I need a saviour because I'm doomed. I've got nothing, empty hands, I've been caught, I'm guilty. Unless you're able to do that, then you cannot plead for mercy before the throne of God. A plea for mercy, verses 18 to 34. Judah speaks up and provides the longest and most moving speech in the book of Genesis. It actually goes through quite a few verses. Um, We're not going to do all the verses. First of all, we're going to pick it up at verse 18. Um, Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Now we move to verse 30. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father, and I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return to his brothers. 
How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Fourteen times in these verses, Judah mentions his father, Jacob. He likely spoke, you could, he likely spoke with emotion and, and tears. No more moving example of contrition and repentance is found in Scripture apart perhaps from the contrite prodigal son who comes pleading for mercy before the father. And this is, this is a turnaround because in the past they didn't care about their father. They said, yeah, look at the Technicolor dream coat, look what happened to it, it's all bloody, they, he's gone, he's dead. They didn't care. But look at the words now. And all of this transformation happened because of the pressure, the pressure, the pressure that was put upon him. Remember Newton's law. Change will not happen unless you are moved by an external force. And there's no bigger external force than God. I can tell you that now. Don't resist. Jacob will eventually crown Judah in chapter 49 with kingship because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule according to God's ideal of kingship. That the king serves the people and not vice versa. And and Judah is now displaying some of the characteristics that would have to be at least pointing towards a greater king coming down the line, the line of Judah, who will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Judah is transformed from one who will sell his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be a slave for his brother. Ding, 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 ding. Any bells ringing here? He's the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's how we leave these two chapters. We're not going to get to the good news just yet. Be in tune with our next episode of Joseph's Life. In conclusion, welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Let me say that ruling the world is not its all it's cracked up to be. Ruling the world, you best leave it to God. He's the best ruler. Let him rule, not just in the world, but let him rule in your life. And all we can do as sinners is plead for mercy. Plead for mercy before his throne of grace. His amazing grace.